to be willing to learn something, you have to be open to the idea of learning something with this intellectual humility, which not everyone has. And that, you know, that's sort of the process of friendship itself, this, this sense of, of give and take, of opening and, and sharing. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, why you're never too old to learn something new. Most of my life, I've been sternly advised not to sing. My brother and sister issued the first edicts. Then as I got older, my friends and colleagues joined the chorus. My almost perfect wife informed me early in our marriage that my tendency to belt out, Robert Ducky, you're the one, in the shower was impinging on our almost perfect life. And these days, my kids preface car rides with the somber pronouncement, under no circumstances, dad, are you allowed to initiate a sing-along? Well, Amanda, Bronson and Elisa, Declan, Rye and Gray, I'd like to let you in on a little secret. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. <laughs> in defiance of your edicts, I've been taking singing lessons with an extraordinary Belgian woman named Eleanor. Let the record show I'm only two classes in. And to quote the great James Brown, I feel good, I knew that I would now. Because when you think about it, why should singing be reserved for the select few who've been blessed with perfect pitch and a killer set of pipes? It's a skill, right? Just like any other. You don't golf on the weekends or kick a soccer ball around with your friends because you think you're going to be the next Tiger Woods or Megan Rapino. You do it because it's fun. You do it because even as an amateur, you can still improve. You do it because honing a hobby is a satisfying, even enlightening experience. I've come to realize that thanks to a wonderful new book by Tom Vanderbilt. Tom is a contributing editor at Wired UK, Outside Magazine, and Art Forum. Talk about range, right? His previous book, Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do and What It Says About Us, was a New York Times notable book. But he's not just a seasoned journalist, he's also a compulsive amateur. It was actually Tom who inspired me to take up singing, a hobby he's working on too. Here he is doing his thing on the social karaoke app called Smool. Nobody told me that these days like these. Most peculiar, mama. Now, I think Tom would be the first to point out that he's not the next John Lennon. And you know what? He's okay with that. He's not out there trying to get a record deal. He's doing this because it feels good and it's good for him. It turns out singing triggers the vagus nerve, which helps regulate your heart rate and blood pressure. But mostly he's doing it for fun. When did having fun stop being a valid reason for trying new things? That question triggers the vagus nerve of Tom's new book, Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. After standing on the sidelines watching his young daughter try out new sports and activities, Tom thought, how come I'm not out there? Why is it that we push our kids to try new things yet we're afraid to try anything new ourselves. He ended up learning how to surf and snowboard, juggle and play chess, and as you've already heard, sing a power ballad. His goal wasn't to gain mastery, he just wanted to be decent. He wanted to have fun. He wanted to let the world know that being a beginner, no matter how old you look or untalented you feel, is a great way to stimulate your brain, meet new people, rile your wife and children, and bring a little adventure into your life. If you ask me, it doesn't get much better than that. 
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Darn it. Have I disappeared again? I don't hear you all. Oh, <laughs> okay, great, great. I think we're rolling. Tom Vanderbilt, it's great to have you on the Next Big Idea podcast. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. You know, Tom, as, as we just witnessed, I think perhaps the most profound experience I've had at being a beginner it has been podcasting in the last year, and particularly during COVID with the audio hookups. It's, it's uh, that, that sort of beautiful awkwardness that you refer to that we're supposed to aspire to, I feel like I've discovered in this process. <laughs> Yeah, I think the uh, the pandemic has turned us all into beginners of of various sorts, and it's opened the window to people like exactly what I'm talking about in this book, taking up new things in ways that we haven't seen before in, in sheer numbers. So, absolutely. Well, so you have a new book out, "Beginners: The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning," which you're quick to say is not a guide to how to learn new things. But I would say that it's a provocation. It's a work of advocacy. The last line of the book is, now that we have ended, it's time for you to begin. So this is really a call to action, right? I mean, it seems like you have a relatively strong view that people should continue learning new things throughout their lives. Yeah, I mean, there, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, learning how to learn better. I just felt that there were sort of already a number of resources out there. And, and for me, that this was the thing that had been holding me back was getting to that beginner stage and then the idea of being in that beginner stage seemed to me so unpleasant and something I didn't want to introduce into my life, which, you know, as a 40-something professional, I'm supposed to exude this, this air of, of competence and, you know, I've got everything under control and I have this number of skill sets, I have mastery in this and mastery in that. So the question is, you know, why would I want to actively go out and seek something I, I would have a good chance of, of being pretty bad at for a while in public? You know, what also happens is that, you know, of course, we're so immersed in, in work and maybe maybe being a parent or other roles that we just put this stuff off. And then maybe someday down the road, retirement comes and suddenly you're scrambling to pick up a number of things that you've always wanted to get to. But, I, you know, I thought, you know, what if I just jump started that process a, a, a little bit and just tackled some of these things head on that I would wanted to do my whole life? So that, that was sort of the premise of the book. And you took on with vigilance a number of very specific new skills. What, what were those? Before I get into those, I, I went through a process that I sometimes do, uh, you know, of, of sort of crowdsourcing. And I went to uh, Ask Metafilter, a site that I like a lot. And I said, you know, hey, what, what new trick should this old dog learn? I got for a lot of it, very interesting replies, you know, a lot of which were things like coding or calligraphy or origami or, you know, things, things like that. And there was some very interesting ideas there. But I set up a set of criteria, and one thing was they didn't need to be things that would benefit me in my job. This was not necessarily professional development. You know, these weren't sort of like, you know, skills with a capital S that you would do in corporate retraining. So anyway, the skills were uh, singing, surfing, drawing, juggling, and essentially making, which ended up being a wedding ring because I lost two rings while trying to learn to surf. One in the Atlantic and one in the Pacific, which is cool. very thorough of you. <laughs> yeah, I, I seek balance in my life in, in all ways. And so, <laughs> fantastic. Well, it couldn't come out at a better time. 
certainly for me personally, because I, I, I'm in a mode of opening myself up to learning new things. But I think it's also a historical moment where there's greater and greater recognition that learning new things throughout your life benefits your career, it potentially benefits your health, it can have great social benefits. I was fascinated by this observation in the book that the word dilettante, which we all associate with being something negative, right? It's an undisciplined, unfocused dabbler. The origin of the word dilettante was quite different. Can you share that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it comes from dilettare, which uh, means to delight in Italian. And it sort of stemmed from the, this 19th century group of, of English, uh, largely men, who were sort of connoisseurs. They were fascinated by this ideal of continental art and culture and, and the, the life that was being lived in places like Italy. So they would go on these you know, sort of grand tours and try to amass this knowledge. Of course, this was before days before a lot of the stuff was that easily available. So you sort of had to go there and, and actually do the stuff and, and live this and sort of bring it back to England and, and then just essentially be delighted by it. This was, you know, sort of ahead of the age when there were things like professional art historians or everything had sort of been professionalized. You needed a university degree to take this sort of thing on. But as various things happened, society began to become more sort of bureaucratized and professionalized. That notion of dilettante became a little bit uh, almost a pejorative term. And it certainly is that way now. I mean, you, you see certain people, you know, like Duke Ellington said he aspires to be a dilettante. So you know, yeah, sometimes you yeah. see someone kind of going against the current and, and claiming that mantle. But generally, it's someone, yeah, who has a short attention span, can't stick to one thing, is just a hopeless dabbler, sort of bad at a number of things, a jack of all trades. Well, with your help, I think we're going to rehabilitate the word <laughs> dilettante and dilettantism. You say in the book that there was actually a society of dilettante, an 18th century British club. Maybe we can bring that back in New York in 2021. But that is a perfect segue to the first of the five big ideas that you kindly distilled for Next Big Idea listeners, which is the power of the beginner's mind. I wrote Beginners essentially to get over my fear of being bad at things. When you're a late 40-something parent who's never been on a snowboard in his life, and your young daughter suddenly wants to go snowboarding, it's far easier to simply sign her up for lessons and wait on the sidelines, proudly taking pictures and posting them to social media, than to actually get out there and snowboard yourself, testing your aging body and your insufficient health insurance. But I want to argue that there's great power in being a beginner. You suddenly see the world with fresh eyes, what the Buddhist monk Shunru Suzuki famously calls beginner's mind. The habits of the expert, as he called them, can be an obstacle. Your own experience gets in the way of finding fresh solutions. In one study that looked at the famous candle problem, in which people are asked to attach a candle to a wall using nothing more than a match and a box of tacks, five-year-olds actually did better than adults. Why? Because adults, the author suggested, think of the box as a container for tacks, not a theoretical shelf for the candle. Being new at something can force you to look at the world in a new way, to look at yourself in a new way. We often think that learning new things as an adult must be related to one's work, or because you lack fulfillment in work. But as Winston Churchill, himself a keen amateur painter, once observed, those whose work is their pleasure are those who most need the means of banishing it at intervals from their minds. And even learning new skills that might seem irrelevant to one's career may actually profoundly help that career. Research shows that Nobel Prize winning scientists were 22 times more likely to have engaged in amateur pursuits particularly in the performing arts, than the average scientist. I doubt any of them woke up one day and thought, 
hmm, what my neurobiology career really needs is for me to learn the tango. But perhaps in taking on those new pursuits as a beginner, they could think again, like children, freed from preconceptions, unburdened by expectation, less categorical in their outlook. They could push beyond their domains, beyond themselves, and they could have fun, something that's never to be underestimated as an agent of learning and discovery. I love this idea that ineptitude, which I experience with some frequency, is not just a lack of something, a lack of knowledge or expertise, but it's also a positive state in the sense that it's an openness to different solutions. Is that part of the, the magic, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, what, when I was, when my daughter was younger, you know, my wife and I were always thinking about how when we had a problem with our, our phone, this still happens today with our iPhone, you know, our daughter, and I imagine a lot of listeners kids out there just just took to that phone like it was natural. And she just seemed to have this amazing ability to figure it out. And there, there's this idea called the less is more hypothesis that because children, you know, are sort of, they have less stuff already in their brain, less less memories, less experiences of other technologies they might have worked with. That they, they come to things like an iPhone with just this kind of complete freshness and, and, and almost, you know, sense of being a digital native. You know, I, adults have all this other stuff that sort of gets in the way. When you're trying to learn a new language, for example, if I, if I right now wanted to go out and, and try to learn French, I'm going to have five decades of English grammar getting in the way of that. I sort of saw this most dramatically when I went down to Alabama to uh, try to ride a bike with Destin Sandlin, who, who does the uh, Smarter Everyday YouTube show. It's, it was a bike called a backwards bike that if you turn it to the left, it steers to the right. But the whole idea is that the more you've actually ridden a standard bike, the harder it is going to be for you to learn how to ride this very unusual bike. And having ridden a bike quite a bit myself, I was unable to even pedal more than you know uh, three feet on this thing because you know I've just got so much muscle memory of how a bike works. Whereas, as Destin told me, his kids actually learned this bike faster because they haven't been riding a regular bike for as long. So there, there's some cases where Again, this lack of experience or lack of skill can actually be an advantage when coming to a new skill. Yep. Well, and kids are a critical piece of the story, aren't they? In terms of your journey, I mean, I've got, I have three boys and there is nothing more humbling than, you know, being a first time parent, as you point out. And uh, it strikes me that we may almost get too good at our regular lives before having children. And then like you have a kid and it really just sends you back to square one. And so you have this, this combination of, first of all, being exposed to a level of humility and kind of beginner status just because the process of raising children is so novel. But the second piece of it is that you're watching this new organism learn with remarkable speed all these new skills. There can be at times a sense of envy, right? I mean, I remember dropping our kids off at preschool and being like, gosh, this finger painting and blocks, that looks fantastic. <laughs> Could I spend a couple hours here? I mean, but was this an important part of your pathway to this book and this this journey? You're exactly right. Yeah, I mean, I was found myself taking my daughter to any number of classes: uh, indoor uh, rock climbing, swimming, piano, chess, and and I just sort of felt like it was this permanent summer camp that I myself never had, and um, and it, it led me to wonder. And I, I tried to do some research about this, kind of about the idea of, of learning things at the same time as your kid when you're both a beginner which is something I basically did in the book in some ways. I mean, here I was telling my four-year-old, you know, it's important for you to learn all these things and don't worry if you're not great at them. 
just have fun. And when I sort of looked at myself, I was not really, you know, walking the walk. So the idea of doing something like a surf class with your kid and you're both going through that same struggle together, I think is an interesting thing where they they learn that learning is hard and that adults don't just automatically know everything that they might have to work also. Yeah, no, this is a great opportunity for one or more of our listeners to, uh, you know, to start a business around creating learning opportunities for children with their parents. It took me a little longer to figure this out than you did, but it's, it's really a great kind of strategy to get your kids into your hobbies. Exactly. <laughs> My father, I remember making, made the observation that when you're in your 20s and you're building sandcastles by yourself on the beach, you look kind of funny. But when you're doing it with a child, you look like just this just incredibly generous, you know, thoughtful, caring <laughs> human being, you know? <laughs> so there's an element of like, it's really a two bird, one stone situation to get out there with your kids learning things. But boy, getting your daughter surfing, that's, that was very clever, Tom. Yeah, I've, I've probably, you know, used my daughter as sort of a, a way into a lot of things that I was secretly wanting to try out. And this brings up a, a piece I wrote for Wired Magazine about, about the game Fortnite, the video game, which, you know, mm. she was sort of interested in. And I, under the auspices of parental monitoring, making sure that this was a, a safe, relatively safe space, you know, I sort of joined on a provisional basis and was soon doing squad battles with her eight-year-old friends. And, you know, this was a bit, um, like you say, with the sandcastles, uh, it was either strange or charming, depending on how you look at it. But <laughs> yeah. um, but for me, it was, you know, a very entertaining thing. And, it, and of course, uh, led to discovering a Fortnite over 40 community that is out there. So I, th I think, you know, a lot of people are, are looking for the excuse to take up new things, but there's often that perception that, well, you're, you're too old or it's too late and uh, that, that, that can definitely get in the way. But yeah, I definitely, you know, my motto became, if you have to take them, join them. Absolutely. Well, and then there's a slightly less honorable version of this, which apparently has a name called symbolic self-completion theory, which is when you try to use your children as proxies to achieve things that you failed to achieve in your own childhood. Are you guilty of this? Probably a little bit. I mean, it's, it's sort of a mixture of that and, and just... Yeah, I mean, I was, I was a very, you know, sort of 70s, you know, kind of latchkey kid. I was on, on my own a lot, sort of didn't have a lot of structure the way that contemporary kids do. And I, I almost think that I would have liked more structure and, and classes and, and reasons to do things rather than being quite so self-sufficient. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, so th what's good about the stuff I was working on is that at least I was failing on the stuff at, in, in real time, like at the same time. It wasn't that I failed as a kid, is that if I was failing at surfing, I was failing while she was doing it. So <laughs> it might not be quite the same dynamic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, getting back to the advantages of the beginner's mind, there's the fact that being in learning mode is just plain fun, right? And one of the things that really comes across in your book, Thomas, you seem to be having a blast a lot of the time. And uh, singing strikes me as maybe one of the more gratifying new skills you developed. I happen to be in the very earliest of stages taking singing lessons myself. Mm -hmm. I downloaded the Perfect Pitch app based on your recommendation. I have homework <laughs> for next week, Sirens. Wow, 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 wow. Can you share a little of what you've learned there? Yeah, one major thing I'd like to get across about singing is that, it, I mean, it, it is a skill. You can definitely improve at it. But I think there's a whole idea out there that people think they're not a good singer, that they don't have this innate God-given gift. But, you know, in the same way you wouldn't expect to just naturally be able to do a great tennis serve or a golf putt, singing takes a little bit of work. But again, it's, it's something that is really a social 
skill that I think has been gradually retreating from life. And and what happens now is that we're, we're all called upon to sing a few times every year when we sing happy birthday or maybe mm-hmm. a national anthem at a baseball game. And by the way, those are two very hard songs, national anthem and <laughs> happy such birthday. An such an interesting detail. It never occurred to me that happy birthday is te- is technically a challenging song. Yeah. Well, it, so isn't that masochistic? It's like the only times you get to sing are you, you get to sing a really hard song and everyone right. sort of fails at it and they feel bad and then they're even less likely to sing. So yeah, I mean, the great thing about singing compared to some of the other things I was doing also is that, you know, there's no equipment. You can do it anywhere, basically. Uh, and it, it just is one of those things that even the practice of it is like some kind of meditative, therapeutic practice that just makes you feel good. I mean, I never struggled with singing practice. Even when I wasn't sounding particularly great, it just felt good to be doing it. And that was just sort of doing it one-on-one with a coach the way you're doing. And then when I joined a choir, it was sort of multiplied 10x. And I just have to say that, you know, one thing to point out about people getting into something is I think, you know, without actually doing it, you might not know where it will lead. Like if you had asked me five years ago, you, hey, why don't you join a choir? I, I would have sort of looked at you like, what? It just was not a thing in my my life repertoire. And and now that thing is, is really you know, one of the most important things in my life, or I should mm. say was until it was, of course, uh, put on hold by the pandemic because yeah. kind of cruel cosmic joke here, choir singing is is possibly the most virulent way to spread COVID. I mean, right. being, being in a room with 80 other people uh, exchanging breath is just not a good sure. idea. So, um, so it's been a great, a great loss, one that I'm really eager to get back to. Mm. Well, you know, I share with you a sense of, uh, of kind of sadness, and I might even say outrage over kind of the the professionalization of singing. And we now have the sense that like 0.1% of the population was blessed with this God-given you know, gift, which is a good voice. And the rest of us are just torturing each other, right? <laughs> right? I mean, I mean that, that's really the perception. I mean, I, I, I've been made fun of my whole life if I ever tried to sing, you know, first by my brother and sister and now by my own children, right? <laughs> right? And I'm finally pushing back because... I think it's one of those fundamental joys in life. And actually, I'm going to read a passage from your book describing the joy of choral singing, because it's just so evocative. You say, as we sing, our own voices diminish in individual impact, but grow in collective resonance. There have been times that it felt less as though I were singing and more as if I were feeding my breath to some invisible superorganism, vaporous, thrumming, omnivorous, pervading the atmosphere. I've got goosebumps just reading that. I mean, it just, uh, it sounds beautiful. So I, I understand why you miss that. It's powerful, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, there's this famous statistic that it, it gets bandied around that, you know, the turn of the century or, you know, a hundred years ago or whatever, in the state of Iowa, there were something like a thousand opera companies. I mean, it, this is the thing, you know, every town used to have sort of their own opera. You know, was it as good as the Metropolitan Opera? No, probably not by a long shot, but it was local people producing their own form of art, you know, not just sort of passively consuming something else. And at USI, you know, I'm all for celebrating the, the greatest singers, but I, I think something's been lost. And and perhaps there's been a you know a bit of reclamation of this during the pandemic, the idea of of people turning inward a little bit and suddenly mm-hmm. not being as obsessed with what celebrities are doing or, you know, instead trying to produce their own things. So I, I don't know. I mean, there's some people argue that singing, public singing hasn't disappeared, but I, I would love to see it come back in, in whatever context. 
Hang tight for a sec while I sing for my supper. When we come back, Tom tells us why we should all aspire to be infants. Because it turns out they're not just cute, clueless blobs, they're daredevils. Stick around. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome back to the next big idea. So Tom's first big idea is that if you can get over your fear of being bad at things and embrace the beginner's mindset, you'll start to see the world and yourself in new ways. Now, in his second big idea, his advice is to be a big baby. As we try to learn new things, we should keep in mind the experience of infants learning to walk. And of course, that was once all of us. For beginners, I spent some time at NYU's Infant Action Lab, watching babies learn to move. Infants spend roughly a third of their day for six solid months practicing walking, and they don't truly perfect it until years later. Along the way, they'll have fallen a lot. Infants fall an average of 17 times an hour. Novice walkers who struggle to regain balance with nearly every step can take up to 30 tumbles an hour. Most of us, if we had this kind of failure rate in something, would simply give up. What's strange is that when the infants switch from something like crawling to walking, they don't seem to remember those risky moments from crawling. They'll suddenly try things that they had previously learned were dangerous. Isn't that bad? Actually, no. I was told by the lab's director, Karen Adolph, that you don't want infants to learn fixed associations. Babies are growing at astonishing speeds. The things that worked for the crawling infant might not work for the walking infant, while the insurmountable hurdles they faced as crawlers might suddenly disappear as they become capable walkers. Most importantly, Adolf says, you don't want the baby to learn to stop trying. That persistence, that willingness to fail, and that adaptability are just a few of the many things that adult beginners can learn from infants. Another key lesson is the importance of changing up your practice. Infants never take the same walk twice. They don't do drills, they explore. You don't want to teach an infant one proper way to walk to be repeated in lockstep. When it comes to learning, variability is key. The neurophysiologist Nikolai Bernstein called it repetition without repetition. What might look like clumsiness or randomness on the part of infants can simply be beginners exploring a range of possible solutions, which seems to help promote faster learning. Infants also remind us that progress is not often linear. Learning happens in fits and starts. Stages are only rough benchmarks. Development does not always march uniformly in one direction. Infants may learn to walk, then briefly revert to crawling, Progress is often U-shaped, meaning kids and adults often get worse before they get better. Infants seem to learn best when operating near the limits of their current skill level, what's called the zone of proximal development. In other words, we should always be on the edge of the possible. Lastly, skills open new worlds. Infants who learn to walk can suddenly go more places and do more things. Infants are faster in the first week of horrible walking, Karen Adolf told me, than they are in their 21 weeks of crawling. None of this will be easy. If it feels easy, you're not learning. Infants experience fall after fall until slowly their brain and body figure out how to stop falling in all sorts of situations. 
Infants live what might be called the beginner's creed. If you don't learn to fail, you'll fail to learn. I love the Infant Action Lab. I'd like to spend some time in the Infant Action Lab. You say in the book that babies are engineered to fail with built-in crumple zones, which I'm guessing is sort of chubby posteriors. Exactly. <laughs> and they, they fall 17 times per hour, you say. And there appears to be a rapid-fire trial and error. They're not just sort of just sponges absorbing. What can we learn from the way that babies learn? One thing is that if we think about how, how children learn, they learn in a very low-pressure environment. This is one thing that, that troubles adults, I think. When, when we set out to learn something, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And there, there, we may also think there's external pressure from other people that, who, who think we're bad. So, uh, you know, kids don't worry about that. So I think that's that, that kind of sense of exploration mm. gets lost. And in, in some ways, by necessity, adults, you know, sort of have to marshal the resources we already have. We might not have time for that exploration uh, Alison Gopnik, the child psychologist, calls this the explore versus exploit paradigm. Hmm. Children are just all about almost everything they're doing is learning. And for them, it's not a hobby, it's survival. They, I mean, they really want to get across the room. They really want to communicate with us, and they don't know how to do any of those things. So, yeah, in certain ways, you know, the not exerting pressure, changing up your practice, just sort of having fun, exploring, uh, that, that really is the, the best way to learn something. I mean, with juggling, for example, I would sometimes get into a rut because I was trying something too much. I, I was just doing the same drill over and over, and I wasn't really making the progress I could have made. So my instructor would say, change up your practice. Instead of starting with your left hand, start mm -hmm. with your right hand. Instead of throwing with those balls, you know, do oranges. Change the room you're in. Try to sing while you're juggling. <laughs> so, you know, just, uh, we get into the habit, sometimes I think, uh, uh, you know, of just repetition so much that it, it becomes too brittle. Right, and right. if there's something we need to do that's a little bit different, we suddenly fail because we don't know how to adapt to that new situation. You also talk about how babies tend to always be in this zone of proximal development, always on the edge of the impossible. It reminds me of the notion of flow state, of having just the right amount of challenge, but that requires a decision to keep pushing, right? And, and Maybe the exploratory outlook encourages this. Yeah, well, pushing is hard, though. And, and there's a, a distinction we should probably make here between performance and learning. And th those are not conjoined most of the time. Yeah, if if yeah. you're, you know, you can be struggling at something, absolutely not getting it at all, but you're actually learning as you're doing it. By flip side, you can be nailing that three ball juggling routine, but you've stopped learning. So, you know, it, it feels better to do well. So we often default to that, but there would be times, let's say with surfing, when I would look at the surf forecast and there were pretty big waves for that day and waves that were a bit bigger than I was comfortable with. And I had to make that sort of command decision. Of course, it's easier with some things than others. I mean, if I, if I try to hit a particularly high note in singing, the potential risk is a lot lower than breaking my neck out in the ocean. Which, by the way, you almost did, right? I mean, not to overstate your challenge, but you really did encounter some real risk in this adventure. Yeah, that's another thing that's hard about being an adult versus a child. I mean, children just have a little bit more flexibility there, uh, lower center of gravity. Adults bring their adult bodies into these pursuits. And yeah, I took a uh, headfirst tumble into the ocean and was driven into the ocean floor. And that, that was a 
not just incredibly terrifying, but it made it very difficult for me to get back out in the ocean. I mean, I already had enough struggles with this, this pursuit to begin with, suddenly adding this whole other element. And I'd love to say I had some kind of secret for getting past that, but it really was just that slow reacclimation process and trying to be rational about it and, and really think what were the causes that you know, led up to this condition? Was it purely an accident or were there things I could avoid in the future. And in fact, there were a few things such as the fact that it was low tide, meaning that it was a lot easier for me mm -hmm. to, to hit the bottom. So I became very careful about avoiding a lot of low tide uh, surfing or at least taking fewer risks. I think maybe, Tom, your crumple zones are not as, as fatty as they might be. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, working, I'm working on that this winter, but... <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. I think all that bicycle racing is really depleting your crumple zones. You've got you to you inflate them. Well, you know, reflecting on the way our children learn and this desire that many of us have in midlife to, to start learning again more intentionally, it strikes me that there's an odd binariness to how our society approaches learning. Our children are in this forced regimen of learning for 18 to 22 years, you know, through high school and college. And then all of a sudden, boom, the learning is over. You're done. You're like a muffin taken out of the oven when the timer dings. It's like, okay, you've been educated. And now we'll put you in the real world. The real world is set up to make things, provide services, right? And not so much to learn. So the problem with this binary shift, right, from, you know, learning phase of life to sort of doing phase of life, it seems to me, is that it's hard to appreciate the learning when it's forced on you in those first 20 years. And then the rest of us end up kind of starved for learning opportunities later. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, the idea of college right now, I mean, I would, I would love college. I mean, I, I feel like I would nail, I, I, would, I, would, I would be so into college. When I look back totally. and think of yeah. the things I, the classes I didn't take, the, the classes oh, I boy. neglected, yeah. I, I would sleep through things and miss lectures. And, and now I'm, I'm sort of like, what, what was I thinking? Uh, so, uh, but then, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I'm also the sort of parent that will, it's not that I don't value education or the school system, but if there's some possible trip that's coming up and it involves taking my daughter out of school to, let's say, go to another country or go to some other city where there would be interesting experiences and museums and things like that, I'll, I'll you'll do it at the drop of a hat. I'm not that concerned with uh, my child's attendance record at school to the extent that I actually got a warning from the Department of Education that a social worker was going to be sent to the house. <laughs> Uh, under the idea that, you know, they were concerned my daughter wasn't getting enough school. Trust me, she is. But um, yeah, all this stuff is just so organized. And I think there's people out there that are trying to fill in these gaps. And, and what you say, uh, a hunger, I think that is the correct word here. When I took this class in Brooklyn called the Metal Shop Fantasy Camp, mm. it was this guy who runs a welding shop. And he was, you know, at the time was struggling a little bit to uh, make his regular business work. And, and he just got the idea that, you know, maybe there'd be people out there who, you know, sort of work with computers all day and just want to do something different with their brain and their hands. And he, so he set up this class where people just come in and make these like simple objects. And he's, he's taught thousands of people and it's almost become this major part of his business. And I, I took the class and I, actually a few months later, I got an email saying they were short on welders which often happens in our, our society because we've so emphasized college educations that there's a, a shortage of certain trades like welding. Hmm. So I, I was suddenly faced with the, you know, to my mind, a bit ironic thing, like, do, should I go do some welding to make money while I'm writing this book? Because I actually, <laughs> actually, actually could have used it, but I, I actually wasn't really that good at welding, so I, I didn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, 
Tom, I'm glad you're not letting your daughter's education schedule get in the way of your surfing vacations. <laughs> exactly. That would really be uh, unreasonable of the schools. <laughs> All right, let's hear big idea number three. If you know what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing it. A mathematician named Richard Hamming once drew an interesting distinction between scientists and engineers. In science, he wrote, if you know what you are doing, you should not be doing it. Meaning, science was about probing beyond the edge of what we know. It was about experimentation and failure. There was no need to dabble in already proven hypotheses. In engineering, however, wrote Hamming, if you do not know what you are doing, you should not be doing it. Engineers are tasked with making sure things do not fail, with ensuring certain quantifiable levels of performance. No one wants to drive across an experimental bridge. In our careers, we're largely engineers. We need to deliver reliable competence. When the New York Times asks me to write something, I don't send them an article written in iambic pentameter or haiku or free verse or any other literary flights of fancy I may have, as much as I'm sometimes tempted. But we all, I think, also want to be scientists. We want to mess around, screw things up, push the boundaries just to see what might happen. We want to get in over our heads without worrying too much about the consequences. We want to see what other dimensions there might be to this self that presents every morning in the bathroom mirror. Those hidden cells become, arguably, even more important as you age and settle into a being that's ever more defined by the outside world and by you. As the writer John Casey wrote, my old teacher Kurt Vonnegut told me that to flatter a person, it's more effective to praise their minor secret vanities than their major accomplishments. We don't always want to be known for that thing we're known for. What a great observation from the mathematician Richard Hammond. In science, if you know what you're doing, you should not be doing it. And yet, as you point out, most of us spend most of our lives as engineers focused on delivering, as you say, reliable competence. Reliable competence, how horribly boring. It sounds like something that might be written on, on our tombstones. He was reliably competent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's we, that's not what we want, right? We want to explore the unknown. Yeah, and it, it brings up something. You know, even when we are reliably competent, I think we're you know we're often also haunted though by this this notion of what's called imposter syndrome. So it's in a way so refreshing about moving beyond trying to trying to learn something new is that you know, you've thrown out all your benchmarks of of progress, everything you sort of know. That that's another way that you've you've mm-hmm. sort of embracing this new world, and that just. It's very liberating and just takes a lot of the pressure away, I think, which just makes the learning experience that much more fun. And you know, it's, no one's expecting you to be any good. So it doesn't matter whether you screwed up, whether you think you're an imposter or not. You haven't claimed not to be. Well, and the irony is we, we certainly need other people to be reliably competent. You know, we, need, <laughs> we need people to fix us when we break, right? I mean, we don't want our surgeons or airline pilots to be embracing beginner's mindset. Yeah, I mean, not in their jobs, at least. I mean, I wouldn't mind if the surgeon, you know, was you know doing magic tricks on the side and uh, you know had got a lot of joy from that. But but you know, it, it brings up a point that I think if you scratch any master at anything, let's just take the uh, current world chess champion Magnus Carlsen. You yeah, know, he's obviously yeah. the best player in the world. He's a grandmaster. He you know is at the top of his game. But another thing that you know a real passion of his is playing soccer. It's not particularly good. I mean, he knows he's not, he's never going to be, you know, a professional or be anywhere remotely as good as he is as chess, yet it, it brings him a certain pleasure, I think, and is a pressure valve for that very high intensity world of professional chess. Yeah. Well, and it, of course, this also reminds me of, of Winston Churchill's great observation. Winston, I think, first picked up a paintbrush when he was 40 years old. He became like an amateur 
painter, wrote a book about it. And he pointed out that like, if you're a knowledge worker and you read all day long, reading for pleasure is really not the best way to kind of restore yourself. I mean, it's a great, obviously, we should all read for pleasure. But he said to restore psychic equilibrium, we should call into use those parts of mind which direct both eye and hand, I guess, referring to his painting practice. Um, but I think that it's a really interesting observation that that we, to the extent that we want to have kind of restorative therapeutic hobbies, it really should not be what we do by day. That was what was so exhilarating for me is to do something like jewelry making and, and to sit at this bench and have to move my body in, in, in new ways, ways that, by the way, made me very sore. And, I, you know, my neck was you know, killing me after a couple of hours. I was like, how do people do this day in and day out? But I really felt an engagement and energy, a flow going on between the nerves at the tips of my fingers and my brain. It was sort of a two-way process that I just found just amazing and, and completely different from anything I'd ever experienced, you know, reading for pleasure or for work, you know, the process of gathering information, just, just moving my body, which is why I sort of emphasize skills in, in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, another argument for focusing on what we don't know how to do is, is that it just feels good, as you say. And I love this description in the book. You say you want to encourage the naive optimism, the hypervigilant alertness that comes with novelty and insecurity, the willingness to look foolish and the permission to ask obvious questions. It strikes me that the permission to ask obvious questions that we have as beginners is kind of a potentially a superpower. And I remember reading that often people in adjacent scientific fields are more likely to make new discoveries in, in a field. Um, and I think part of it is this fresh eyes factor, right? That they're able to ask questions that the, the local experts haven't asked for many, many years. Yeah, yeah. And you can see that in, in the emergence of these, these sites like Kaggle, which is sort of a crowdsourcing platform for coming up with innovative solutions in various fields. And, and often it's people coming from, like you say, adjacent fields who have, or, or sometimes not even adjacent at all, just having this, this insight that, that comes precisely from lack of knowledge. And people ask me, you know, did, did you have any flashes of insight that you picked up while doing these, these skills? And, it, you know, I always feel a little bit guilty that, I mean, I, I don't think I did, you know, nothing, no strokes of, of genius, but I, I do feel like there were all sorts of things going on that, you know, in terms of, of expanding my sense of engagement with the world and different ways of looking at the world that to me felt very empowering. I mean, so, you know, suddenly mm -hmm. uh, something like The Queen's Gambit comes out on television and where I might've sort of simply watched it and skated over all the chess details. Suddenly I actually knew what they were talking about and could really yeah. make sure that the positions on the boards were, were legitimate because it's a, it's a classic trope that um, when chess is used in television or movies, they, they just put some nonsense uh, pieces on the board and yeah. that always upsets chess people. But so now I, I was one of those chess people. And that this is a thing that you sort of get into also is that when, when you're starting something new in the beginning, you're doing the verb, the verb, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a bit of singing. I'm trying a bit of juggling. And then when you stick mm. with it, there might come that sort of magic moment where you, you have self-ownership where you suddenly become the noun and you say, you know, I'm a singer or I'm a, I'm a chess yeah. player. And I mean, it's, it's not like socially defined. You can sort of choose to do that when, when you want. And I'm not sure I feel comfortable doing it with everything or <laughs> in all moments, but it, but, it, but it does feel like some kind of transformative moment. Well, you mentioned at the top of this idea, the great Kurt Vonnegut quote, 
To flatter a person, it's more effective to flatter their secret vanities than their known accomplishments. What are the minor secret vanities that you'd like to be known for? <laughs> well, I mean, some of them now stem from this book. I mean, because sure. I've put a lot of a lot of work, for example, into singing. So that is my minor secret vanity right there. I think a lot of us, you know, ha- might have that sense of that of wanting to be multidimensional and, and wanting mm. to have that hidden, yeah. that hidden or sort of not as well known side. And just because it, you know, it makes makes life interesting. It gives us, you know, almost like a it's like a Swiss Army knife. We have this little extra tool we can open up. For me, it almost goes back to being a journalist. I pride myself on being able to have a conversation with anyone about anything. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of the same thing where I, I would like to just be able to engage with with the world. Even if I'm not a great surfer, now at least if, if I'm at some place where they're surfing, I can just, you know, sort of talk to the people and, or maybe try it myself or just have a greater sense of engagement with the world rather than what might be my, my natural state, which would be kind of a reflexive fear of the unknown and and like, oh, that, that thing's not for me. I can't be good at that. I don't have the time or money or the 10,000 hours. Yeah, you, you've hit on something interesting there, which is the, uh, the points of possible engagement with other humans increases, right? If you end up seated on an airplane next to a juggler, you'll have a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> the next time I'm on a plane, instead of asking my seatmate what she does for a living, I'm going to ask what she does for fun. Though I should probably brush up on my juggling first. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Welcome back to the show. Let's do a quick recap. Tom has advised us to embrace the beginner's mind, emulate infants, and eschew reliable competence unless you're flying a plane or performing heart surgery. Now, in his fourth big idea, he says it's not your aging body that's stopping you from learning something new. It's your stubborn brain. Your brain is holding you back. One of the biggest obstacles to learning new skills is not your body, but your brain. When we get really good at something, we stop thinking about it. It becomes automatic. When we perform a well-practiced task like walking, our brain is constantly running a series of predictions about what will happen. These predictions are incredibly robust. Think about when you step on a broken escalator. You feel for a moment that it's moving because of all the times it actually has been moving. Often the biggest barrier to skill learning is overthinking. When stroke victims have to learn to walk again, their gait is often awkward because they're actually thinking about putting one foot in front of another. Under the theory of reinvestment, as Rich Masters calls it, when you try to exert conscious control of your body, you limit the so-called degrees of freedom. You freeze up. As Masters describes it, the trick is getting people to learn to move without knowing they're learning. Good skill learning also requires what movement scientist Gabrielle Wolf calls an external focus. Athletes do better when they focus not on what their own bodies are doing, but some external target. As Mohamed abdul Rauf, one of the NBA's most accurate free throw shooters, describes it, I just relax and shoot and when I shoot, I look toward the back of the rim. Your brain can get in the way of your body in all kinds of ways. When I was trying to learn to sing, I would struggle to hit higher notes, which seems natural, I'm a baritone. But these were notes I could actually achieve in conversational speech. What was happening was that I was thinking about the high notes, and I was literally trying to stretch my body upwards as I sang. 
which only strained the very mechanism needed to produce those notes. My teacher had a nice little trick. When I was about to hit a high note, briefly bend my knees and dip down. I could suddenly hit the notes. The escalator observation is totally fascinating to me because I think, I'm guessing that most people have had this experience, right? Where you, where you step on an escalator that's not moving and you feel it move for a second. This explanation is fascinating to me, right? That we're living 100 milliseconds in the past because it takes 100 milliseconds for our brains to process. And so our brains are constantly predicting what's about to happen so that we can be in sync with the actual moment. Am I getting that right? Yeah, I first came across this work by uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, you know, talking about the, oh, br- yes. the brain as a, as a prediction machine, which, which, makes, which makes life sort of possible and easier. You know, if we really had to walk around endlessly analyzing every moment, it, it, you know, we wouldn't get much done. So there's the sense that the brain is, is on autopilot and it's only when something is disrupted, when you, you suddenly step on that crack on the sidewalk and, and you look back, you're like, where did that come from? If you had been actually analyzing the sidewalk carefully, you would have seen the crack and wouldn't have stepped in it. Another idea of this is you can't tickle yourself and produce laughter. Right. Because your brain has already predicted what it's going to feel like and there's not that element of surprise. So I think, yeah, I found that to be sort of a metaphor, you know, just for a, a, a lot of these, well, the skills we do know how to do and the ones that we're learning. It's a very, you know, sort of tricky thing about the human brain. It's, it's broken into these two types of knowledge, declarative and procedural. Mm-hmm. Declarative is knowing, you know, you know, about something and procedural is knowing how to do something. And it's two different parts of the human brain. And as this, this was shown famously in the amnesiac patient uh, who was known as HM, they were trying to teach him this motor skills exercise in a laboratory. And they were teaching him every day. And it, the next day would roll around and he would forget the whole process of having learned this thing the day before, yet he, he could still do it and he was making progress. So he, he, without even being aware, he was getting better. And it, it just sort of goes to show how these two things are decoupled from one another. And what the problem, conversely, when you try to think about something too much, it sort of gets in the way. And that I think... But, you know, that's one of the key differences, again, between adults and children is that adults tend to overthink learning where children really just plunge in and are less, you know, less of a thought process going on. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and my takeaway is that what our brains are doing when we do even simple movements is so complex and sophisticated that if we try to basically overthink it, as you say, we often screw it up. I mean, you point out that here, this is quoting from your book, the human arm alone has from the shoulder joint to the wrist joint, some 26 different degrees of freedom or directions that can be moved. So to move our arms, we need to coordinate any number of the body's thousand odd muscles and hundred billion neurons. So it's just this almost unfathomably complex process to just like throw a, a snowball and hit a tree. Yeah, and this is why you see coaches, you know, so heavily rely on things like metaphor. Mm. So in learning to surf, for example, when when I popped up on the board, I was told to, you know, put my position like as as if I were an archer drawing a bow, which you know everyone can kind of intuit what that is or what that looks like because it's a lot easier than trying to say, okay, now cock your right elbow at thirty eight degrees. You know, do this, do that, and yeah, there, yeah. there's just certain kinds of ways to that instruction in this regard is so much more fruitful. Kind of an example of this, I was setting up a new mountain bike last night. It came in a box and it had an instruction manual. Instruction manual had no words, all pictures. Yeah. Because words would just get in the way. You know, insert 
tab A into slot B is not a very effective way to learn things. It's, it's just, you know, we, we learn through mimicry, through visual observation, which I think was, you know, as we've all probably done, we've, we go to YouTube to learn things because we can watch someone. That is an interesting kind of thing that's happening is I think written instructions are just, are, are kind of collapsing as a form, <laughs> right? <laughs> because, because our children are like, you've got to be kidding me, as if I would read like 12 pages to describe a, rel- a relatively simple thing. And it's partly because things that involve the motion of the body or the motion of objects are better communicated with images. Yeah, I mean, there's a study I refer to in the book that had tried to have people learn to juggle, and, the, and one group was given written instructions on how to juggle. Mm. Another group was shown by an adult model how to juggle. The written group, 0% success. The model group, something like 90%. So just not even, not even close. Well, this totally supports my children's view that text in general is a backup system if the power goes out and really should be dispensed <laughs> with, <laughs> which is not, which is concerning to me. But when you talk about juggling, your juggling teacher, Heather Wolf, told you to be the robot, to turn off your brain and just let your arms and hands do the work. I, I, I like that a lot. Be the robot. Yeah, I found that, that kind of idea coming up a lot. You know, just, just stop thinking about what you're doing. Stop thinking about yourself. This is one thing that, you know, sort of characterizes beginner behavior. It's a focus on one's own body. If you think about beginner drivers, they are sort of looking at their hand on the wheel. They're looking at the mm-hmm. front of the car. Where you really want to be looking is as far down the road as possible to anticipate future problems. But um, surfers tend to look at their feet when they when you want to be looking at a point on shore. So it's, it's a funny thing of almost trying to automate yourself, you know, yep. and just and just let it, let let a program run. But that takes work to get you know comfortable with that program. And but beginners rely so heavily in the beginning on on rules because we tend to get overwhelmed by the sheer amount of stuff going on. So there's like basic rules we try to keep in our head which work up to a certain point, and then we have to you know, switch to something else. Yeah, it's interesting. Yes, yeah, skiing is similar. When you're, when you're skiing moguls, I believe that the instruction is to look three or four bumps ahead, not mm-hmm. the one in front of you, but three or four ahead. That's what, the, that's what great mogul skiers do. Yeah, and that, that's something you see you know, in all sorts of sports, like you know, look through the turn in auto racing, you know, or look where you want to go while you're descending a hill on a bike. Yeah. And the nice thing about that is somehow the body just magically, everything falls into place and you execute the action more smoothly. I, I don't actually know the what's going on there, but it, it's just sort of a truism in sports instruction. Well, in your lyrical descriptions of these various activities that you uh, engage in in the book, I think the surf camp in Costa Rica is going to have an increase in signups as your book makes the rounds. You write... We soon fell into an intoxicating routine. Mornings, we'd gather for breakfast around a large table, a bounty of brightly glistening tropical fruits arrayed before us. <laughs> and in the evenings, with our little dorms, our classes, and our sophomoric humor and gossip about the instructors, it felt like college. Probably hadn't had as much fun since college. Was that a highlight for you? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, it sort of speaks to a larger point, which is that I I was talking to uh, Jesse Itzler about this, and some people may know his name. But he, he was sort of saying he can't go to a, a beach at this time in his life and and just kind of relax on the beach. There's just too many things he wants to do. So he's constantly, when he goes somewhere, he's trying to do something. And I, I become sort of a bit that way myself. And, you know, my, my vacations, so to speak, have become learning vacations. And, you know, it's, it's not that there obviously isn't a lot of fun going on there as well, but I, I just found it it just added such a sense of, of structure and purpose. And, you know, it's it's kind of like you're going on a great holiday and the souvenir you bring home 
is this new skill. Right, instead of some unfortunate piece of art that doesn't hold up, right. doesn't, look, doesn't look as good a month later. Well, I think that's a great segue to idea number five. You're never too old, it's never too late. When my daughter plays competitive chess, I often notice that she gets particularly nervous about playing higher or even equally rated boys as opposed to girls. This is a very real thing in chess. Psychologists call it stereotype threat. The internalization of some external stereotype actually makes you perform worse. Boys are said to be better at chess than girls, so girls often underperform when playing against boys, playing worse than their rating would suggest. Adults, I think, face a similar stereotype threat when it comes to being a beginner. It's that little voice within saying, it's too late, you're too old. Only children can learn chess or the piano. It is true that it gets harder, sometimes marginally, sometimes significantly, to learn new skills as one gets older, particularly when you're an absolute novice in a field. As work by psychologist Neil Sharnas shows, when subjects of various age and experience were asked to learn a novel word processing program, when a subject had experience, age didn't so much matter. But when they were novices, age suddenly came into play. The older the novice, the older it took to learn. So that's the bad news. If you're older, you're going to have to work harder than a younger person to pick up some new skill. The good news is that the brain is still ready, willing, and able to learn at any age. Take, for instance, juggling. A week's worth of trying to learn to juggle, three balls, already has a big effect on brain plasticity. That's the shorthand way to describe the brain reshaping itself, rewiring its connections. A study that looked at a group of older subjects with a mean age of 60 years who were learning to juggle found that their brains exhibited a similar level of plasticity as the subjects in an earlier study where the mean age was 20. This doesn't mean those older people are going to actually learn as easily as younger subjects. But here's the important thing to remember. The more learning that older adults take on, the faster they seem to learn, the more they become like younger adults. So adults face a stereotype threat. I think that, that rings true. We're old dogs, you can't learn new tricks. But there's also, I think, this kind of self-inflicted limitation that you talk about. I love this quote from Tim Wu, to permit yourself to do only that which you're good at is to be trapped in a jail whose bars are not steel, but self-judgment. And you go on to say that to allow this to happen is to relinquish your freedom, right? So we have, it seems to be we're battling two things. We're battling this perception that we're just not capable of learning. And we're also just battling our own perfectionism to some degree. Yeah, and I think this goes back to what we were talking about with, with the increasing rise of professionalization and specialization in the professional world. I think a lot of that has sort of bled over into the, you know, into, into one's free time, into these things that we're supposedly doing just for fun. And people are taking on a lot of the same methodologies and benchmarks and imperatives and goals from that world into this other world. And so I, I found that, you know, especially when you're researching how to learn to do something, you, you just come across a lot of these very regimented or, you know, you know, sort of very strict or, or putting a time pressure on it, how to, how to learn something in X, you know, amount of time. So anyway, just kind of getting away from this idea of pleasure and, and yeah. You know, I think it's, it's interesting that I, I see a lot of folks my age, I'm 53 years old, picking up their guitars and learning new things. I don't know to what extent it's a life stage or a kind of cultural development or both. But it was interesting before this conversation, I was talking with our two producers and Caleb, who's 29 years old, said, you know what? I'm actually giving up a lot of my hobbies because I'm focusing 
which we appreciate. Thank you, Caleb, for focusing, which is part of why the next big idea is is all that it is. Um, and my and Michael, meanwhile, is like um, also doing highly focused, exceptional work. He's also my age, but he's he's playing the guitar. He's learning Spanish on Duolingo. I wonder if there's like a U-shaped curve to learning a greater breadth of things that we do this in our early years, in, in childhood, maybe through college. Then we have a tendency to focus. And then in, sometime in midlife, we start kind of broadening again. Do you think that might be true? Yeah, I mean, it seemed to make sense. Uh, you know, there's a book, I'm blanking on the title or, or the author, but, you know, sort of looking at the question of happiness and how happiness also sort of seems to hit a peak around age 52 or something, because, you know, you've sort of, uh, you've figured enough things out, you might have hit, you know, career competence. And, and this might be a time that you're also, because you may have achieved some of the things you've wanted to set out to achieve in life, that you have a little more, you know, flexibility to, to then want to be, do something like become a beginner and look bad at something. But yeah, when I was in my 30s or 20s, I wasn't really interested in looking bad at things. I wanted to look good at things that, and, you know, be the best at, let's say, the, you know, the writing career that I could. So I, I think there's sort of a natural life arc there. And, and this is despite the fact that some of the data that you cite does show that, that Michael and I, and perhaps you too, Tom, have, have just brain cells dying every second. <laughs> We're really, like our capacity, some of our core intellectual capacities are eroding at a great clip. But Michael points out that in his work with his guitar, that whereas when he was 16 learning the guitar, he, he may have been better at memorizing things and had been somewhat more cognitively flexible. But today, in his early 50s, he's much more focused and disciplined. So I wonder to what degree some of these advantages of age offset the, the liabilities. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great point. And, and to refer again to the uh, work of Alison Gopnik, I mean, she, she, she points out in one article that, I mean, it's sort of amazing that children actually are such great learners. When you think of how you know, sort of unfocused and, and noisy and, and just sort of out of control they sometimes seem to be, like the idea that they're absorbing anything almost seems like a miracle. And that, you know, and, and sort of children are rich in, in this thing that's been called fluid intelligence, you know, this, this sort mm -hmm. of rapid fire, quick thinking. Whereas adults tend to do better on, on crystallized knowledge, which is things like wisdom and sort of drawing upon a greater breadth of expertise. And even the middle-aged brain operates in a different way where it draws upon more regions. So it's sort of a you know, more of a Renaissance brain, whereas the young brain is just this, this sort of like single-minded machine just soaking stuff up. I mean, one of the great things we've absorbed over a lifetime as learning is precisely that, how to learn. You know, we sort of have figured out what works, what doesn't, what's worth paying attention to, what's worth ignoring. Adults definitely have things on their side, even in the face of, of cognitive decline that, that you were referring to. <laughs> one of the things I walked away with from this book is just thinking of some of the people I met along the way who, who yes. were, you know, I'm in my 50s, but I met people in their 80s who were still taking on these new learning projects and in some ways outperforming me. So you know, sort of gave me, you know, a nice thing to shoot for. You know, we, we often think about emulating the young only, like, oh, I wish I could be that person, have that person's advantages. But to my mind, there were things that I was worth, worth emulating in, in these people's examples that they were giving to me. If I remember correctly, you were out swum by a septuagenarian woman who only recently quit smoking and had just learned to swim, <laughs> right? I wasn't there. Yes. And there's there an 80-something gentleman in the Upper West Side who's working on trying to juggle five balls. Is that correct? 
Yes. And I mean, th- these are both incredibly hard things. Yeah. I mean, Patricia uh, from France was amazing. I mean, this is the kind of thing where you just never know. And I myself had, had been swimming terribly my whole life, and I was trying to sort of get better at that. She hadn't been swimming at all. And she, some people just, this maybe brings up the talent question. Maybe some people just take to things better than others do or, uh, you know, but we, we all have something, something to learn. And I think, you know, yeah, so there's, if I could be like her, swimming like her uh, in 20 years, I'll, if I could swim like her now, I'd actually be very uh, happy, but um, it's just something for me to aspire to. I, I think it could be again the absence of, of compression zones. The, the baby fat you, <laughs> you might you might you might be you might just be sinking too much time in the water. I don't know. Exactly. A theme that runs through the book is the people that you met. It reminds me of kind of a, a view I've had for some time that we think of community as being like one of three or four important parts of our lives, but I think there's kind of a an argument that community is kind of not 50% of happiness or 75%, but 99%. And learning, learning new things in particular, where you're vulnerable and awkward and look ridiculous, it makes us vulnerable while exposing us to other people who are vulnerable in this learning process. And so it's kind of like the perfect conditions for meeting people and really connecting with people. And so in this view, maybe the biggest single payoff of learning new things is that we're entering these environments that are optimal conditions for human connection. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, like the cliche finding your tribe, but it really is the self-selecting group, I think, that, you know, obviously is interested in the same thing that you're interested in, the the skill or or the pursuit, whatever it is, but then has also been willing to take that big step that you mentioned of vulnerability. To be willing to learn something, you have to be open to the idea of learning something with this intellectual humility, which not everyone has. And that, you know, that's sort of the process of friendship itself, this, this sense of, of give and take, of opening and, and sharing. And, and I, I, mean, I certainly didn't go into this project thinking, oh, I'd like to meet some new friends. But right. the process of going through this turned out, you know, yeah, I, I met these people that I probably wouldn't have met through my normal, you know, channels, who, who knows. But, uh, but yeah, I just found it had such a, you know, great positive Outlook and it's just that sense of going through these things together. I think I, I definitely enjoyed working with instructors one on one, but sense of going through these shared struggles together, I think, is really such a powerful sort of bonding experience. Also, that doesn't always last with everyone, but I think you, you know, sort of find some incredible moments in there. And so, post pandemic, among all the new skills that you've learned in the last few years, how many do you think you'll stick with? My whole point from the beginning was to hopefully not treat these just like sort of quick bucket list things I was just going to do and, and check off and say, okay, been there, done that, that they were things you could really grow with and, and grow into and, and deepen. You know, there, there's obviously now that I'm not working on it as an active book project, something like a surf camp, you know, there's, there's this, this raises, you know, an idea here about, let's say money and, and time. And obviously I was in a very privileged position to have both of those temporarily to do these sorts of things. But the good news for people is that there are so many resources out there on a place like YouTube or Duolingo that I think we're really living in, in the golden age of learning. And it's been sort of accelerated during the pandemic because people are, are figuring out even, even better how to do a lot of the stuff online where there's a certain democratization going on. So there, there's endless numbers of examples of people that have learned to play guitar simply through YouTube videos, not, not yep. having some expensive yep. uh, teacher. So, I mean, yeah, trust me, I'd love to get back to surf camp, but I, you know, <laughs> in terms of prioritizing where that fits in my my life priorities, I'm, I'm not sure. 
Well, thank you, Tom Vanderbilt, for taking a brief respite from your surfing and singing and juggling and <laughs> metallurgy to be with us here today. It's been a real pleasure. Pleasure is mine. Thank you. And maybe we can start a chapter of the Society of the Dilettanti in New York. <laughs> I, I, I think, think so, yeah. I, I, I love stuff like that. Ready to experience the joy and transformative power of lifelong learning, but not sure where to begin? Try downloading our next Big Idea app. You'll also get 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books, including Beginners by Tom Vanderbilt, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. It may not be metallurgy, but we still think it's a lot of fun. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. Join us next week for a side-splitting, mind-opening conversation with Jennifer Auker and Naomi Bagdanis, two Stanford professors who say that embracing levity is the key to success. Special thanks to Tom Vanderbilt. His book, Beginners, is out now. And if you want to sing a virtual duet with him on Smool, his handle is Adult Beginner. Last but not least, I want to give a shout out to the pros who make me sound like less of an amateur with every episode. Our executive producers are Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kovnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound designed by Jason Freeman. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week. <laughs>